I won't review last time's introduction. I encourage you to. <laughs> we uh, spent an hour and a half last time just warming up to this book. <laughs> I will point out that the book is very unique in that it's the only book of the Bible that promises you a blessing if you read it. All through the Bible, there are blessings pronounced on those that will study the Scriptures. But only one book has the audacity, if I can use that term, to pronounce a blessing upon the reader. And this book does, of course. I also want to call your attention to the name of the book. It's not Revelations, plural. It's singular. It consists of lots of visions and symbols and things, but it is a singular revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as you go through the book, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and the beasts are passing through. The issue, the center of the whole story, the center of the stage from beginning to end is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Singulars, the unveiling, the word the uh, apocalypsis, the Greek from which the word is taken, means the unveiling. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It occurs about 18 times in the New Testament. Unveiling. One of the most important verses in the Bible, in the, in the book of Revelation, is verse 1. And I'm amazed how many people don't read it. Because its actual content may surprise you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him. Let's stop at the comma for a moment. Realize what that means? To whom was the revelation given? To Jesus Christ. By whom? The Father. Now, that raises all kinds of questions. Can Jesus learn? That's an interesting thing. Well, we knew he learned as a child. We know that he increased in wisdom as a child. Most of us recognize that much of his awareness, or however you want to express that, came at his baptism. Baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist was a very, probably a much bigger milestone than most of us realize, unless we've studied very carefully. But even during his ministry, he made some strange remarks. One of them was in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, where he says, "No man, speaking of the second coming, no man knows the day and the hour. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. Now, it's quoted several times, but in the Mark quote, he mentions even himself as not knowing the day and the hour, at least at that time. That's a strange idea. Strange idea. Does he know the time of the second coming now? I suspect so. And some of us suspect, it's just a, a conjecture, is that maybe he came into his full awareness at this time. And the Father revealed the whole program to him. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. The word servant there is an interesting word. It's the word doulos. It's a special kind of servant. The proper translation would be bond slave. Not just servant. Servant serve a broad, broader term. The term here in the Greek is a very specific term, the doulos. In ancient Israel, if you were an indentured servant, if you were servicing a debt, typically a seven-year period, 
you would pay off that debt by uh, indentured servitude. At the end of your period of service, you had an option. It was voluntary on your part. But if you chose, and many did, to stay with the house, to stay with the family, for the rest of your life as a servant, you could elect to become a doulos, a bond slave. And the ceremony that marked that was they would take you to the doorpost of the house, and they would take an awl, or an ice pick type of tool, and pierce your ear to the doorpost. And that's mentioned twice in the scripture, Exodus 21, verse 6, and Deuteronomy 15, verse 17. The concept of the doulos. And what you did with that pierced ear then, you typically subsequently would wear a ring in that ear, and you would proudly wear that as a badge of honor. So if some visitor to the home would recognize that you were not a menial servant, you were not an indentured servant in the usual sense, you were a bond slave. You were one who, who chose to serve that house forever or for the rest of your days. So in, within, the sense, within the household structure, that was a position of honor in a sense. Now, because of that background, of course, that's why the apostles would sometimes refer to themselves as the doulos of Jesus Christ, those that had elected to spend the rest of their days in his service. That was the concept. Moving on, it says, to show unto his servants. This is not a sealed book. If you studied prophecy like Daniel chapter 12, you know the book of, at the end of that book, the angel sealed the book until the time of the end. The fact that Daniel is becoming very clear and understandable in recent years is a fulfillment, fulfillment of prophecy. But Revelation is not a sealed book. It's very open. Chapter 22, verse 10 will, will amplify that whole issue. So it's here to be understood. And these aren't ephemeral vision stuff. These are tangible things we're going to encounter in this book. Things which must shortly come to pass. Misunderstood word. In the Greek, it's entaxai. It's the word from which we get the word tachometer. It's shortly, not in the sense of short time, but quickly. In other words, once these things start happening, they're going to happen very quickly. It's rapidly would be perhaps a better uh, translation. In 1 Samuel 3, 12, God says, What I begin, I will also end. And we could amplify that as we go. It says, Shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it. The word signify, if you look at the word carefully, means to render into signs. Signify, if you will. Signify it. Render it into signs or codes that are symbolic of the reality. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. These things have an intended communication for you uh, and that the Holy Spirit will uh, uh, help you identify. I can't remember how young I was when I heard a speaker give a lecture one night um, pointing out the book of Revelations in code, but every code is explained somewhere else in the Bible. And that blew me away. And that's what wakened my first interest, I think, in the book of Revelation. It's such a tragic book that most people, including most pastors, many pastors, refuse to touch it because it's confusing or it leads to dissension or who knows what these mean. And, you know, they have a tendency to be afraid of it. And others are afraid of it for fear, for a lot of reasons. We're going to try to dismiss all of that here in the next few verses. But the point is, is that it's tragic because this is the one book of the Bible which, which we all have an admonition to read. There's no admonition to read the Gospel of John or the book of Genesis, the book of Acts specifically. 
but there's quite a few that aimed here. And it'll have an incredible blessing, partly because, not the only reason, partly because in order to do this properly, we'll go into every other book in the Bible, practically. We won't. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation that contain over 800 references out of the Old Testament alone. And we will carefully, thoroughly go through each one of those. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> we will have the list of, of, of those references all tied together in the notes that accompany the tapes. But uh, no, we'll just hit the highlights, obviously. And he sent and signified it by his messenger. The word angel is there. And there's a point of controversy here, not a serious one. The word angelos in the Greek is a messenger. If I'm, in a, I'm a captain of a group of soldiers and I've got trouble on my right flank, I may send an angelos there to uh, get a message to him. Angelos just means messenger. Now, obviously, in the Scripture, the messengers in the Scripture usually, not always, are of some supernatural spirit being. But the word angelos here, the word angels, may simply be viewed as an untranslated word, a messenger. Some commentators in the book of Revelation suspect that what's in view here is simply the pastor of the churches that are going to be involved. Maybe so. Or maybe, indeed, the allusion here is to a, an angel whose responsibility is that church. Both views are defendable. Both views are probably very valid. It may surprise many to learn that the concept of a guardian angel with children is scriptural. Jesus speaks of them in Matthew 18. The concept of an angel being... Uh, 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 made responsible for a fellowship is not a surprise would not be a surprise so it could either view is supportable and it's not a it's not a big issue one way or the other i don't believe well verse 2 we're making progress he sent signified by his angel to his servant john continuing on him who bore witness of the word of god and of the testimony of jesus christ and of all the things that he saw now by the way, this is epistolary uh, errorist, which means he, he's projected to where we are, and he's looking back. You'll discover his frame of reference, as he exp expresses here, is from our time period looking back, which is kind of interesting. It says, who bore witness. It's kind of interesting to put in front of us John's other writings. He wrote five books in the New Testament. The Gospel, three letters, and the book of Revelation. The Gospel, he expressly describes... He wrote so that we might believe. John 20, he mentions that. His epistles were written that we might be sure. 1 John 5.13 expresses that. The book of Revelation, that we might be ready. To believe, to be sure, and to be ready. They're organized that way. The gospel speaks of the life received. The epistles, the life revealed. And Revelation will speak of the life rewarded. Gospels focus on salvation, the epistles on sanctification, the book of Revelation on redemption. Salvation is touched upon in Revelation only incidentally. The theme is, is redemption. And, of course, the gospel really presents Jesus Christ in his role as the prophet, the epistles in his role as the priest, and Revelation clearly his role as the king, prophet, priest, and king being, of course, the three principal uh, roles. Who bore witness of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ of all the things he saw. Now, this was written about A.D. 95. It was written during the reign of Titus Flavius Domitian. John was in exile on the island of Patmos from 86 to about 96 for a 10-year period there. And it's towards the end of that exile, roughly they estimate about the year 95, the book of Revelation was written. 
There are some that try to find some excuse to make the book of Revelation dated earlier. I'm not going to bore you with those arguments because they're easily refuted and they're contrived primarily to get around some doctrinal problems that some people don't like to face. We're going to take this book at its face value and discover that it all hangs together, not only with itself, but the rest of the Scripture. So I'm not going to weary you with a lot of, of uh, textual arguments. Um, let me just aver that there's substantial support to uh, A.D. 95 or 96 uh, date to the book of Revelation. Verse 3. Here's one of those great verses. There are several in this book. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear, the words of this prophecy... And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is at hand. What a verse. I don't think you can find a verse like that anywhere else in the Scripture. A blessing on the specific reader of this particular prophecy. But I also want you to know before we leave this verse, there are three things here. Read, hear, and keep. You need to read it, you need to hear it, but that's the rub. You also have to keep these words. I'm going to encourage you during our time together over the coming weeks that you find time just to read the book through. Certainly read the chapters that we'll be dealing with or you're anticipating that we're dealing with, but also it doesn't take that long to sit down and just read the book. Don't, don't stumble or worry about some of the idioms. They'll be clarified as we go, most of them. But um, just read it and see what the Holy Spirit does. Blessed is he that readeth. This is the first of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. There's one here, there's one in chapter 14, 15, verse 19, chapter 20, 22, and we'll deal with those when we get there. First of seven Beatitudes. Now, this leads to something else. The number seven. <laughs> Anyone reading their Bible is familiar that number seven seems to come up a lot. There's, you know, seven days make a Sabbath, seven years make a Sabbath year. They marched around Jericho seven times. We'll talk about more of that uh, later on. And uh, all know the story of Joseph, the seven years of famine, the seven years of plenty. Nebuchadnezzar's insanity for seven years. In the New Testament, we have seven Beatitudes. The Lord's Prayer has seven petitions. Um, there are seven parables in Matthew 13, and we have some surprises in that before we're through. There were seven sayings from the cross. There are thousands of sevens in the Scripture. This has been much studied. Ivan Pannon is famous for many of his discoveries of the numerics of the text itself in its sevens. is unbelievable stuff that if you haven't gotten into it. Uh, the structure of the Hebrew letters, we touch on some of this in our the textual structure in the uh, Torah, in our briefing package called Beyond Coincidence, which you may be familiar with. If not, you might want to look through some of that. Um, McCormick, back in 1923, published a book on the heptatic structure of Scripture. It's been well-traveled ground, but it's amazing, not only in terms of the idioms, but even the structure of the text, how seven keeps coming, keeps coming up. And uh, so we're going to keep running into sevens very overtly, but also very uh, subtly as we go through. Uh, and we couldn't possibly touch on all of them. Verse 4. Now, here's where the book, in a sense, begins, because we have sort of a heading or a title. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. It starts to open like a letter. There's actually several levels here because John has this opening chapter, John to the seven churches, where he introduces the book. Then we're going to discover there are seven cover letters by Jesus Christ himself to seven churches. And then the book is attached to all of that. So it's an interesting structure. John to the seven churches. It's interesting that John has no title here. He doesn't need it. He's obviously well known to these seven churches. 
I have uh, not come across any competent or even credible challenge to John's authorship. John was obviously well known to these churches. And uh, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And we're going to deal with these seven churches later, so let me defer comment on that for the moment. He says, Grace be unto you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ and so forth. We have John to the seven churches. And then he says, grace and peace. Now, grace is kataris in the Greek, and, of course, peace is shalom in the Hebrew. So it's interesting you've got the Greek and the Hebrew there. One of the things you discover if you start studying this book very carefully is that they have all kinds of problems with the Greek because the Greek structure is strange. And many commentators don't seem to be able to relate to that. In recent years, it's become much more clear as to why the Greek is strange. It's now very evident that the Greek is strange because it's been translated from the Hebrew. It may have been written by John in Greek, but his thought patterns are in Hebrew. And that starts to explain some of the strange structures. In fact, there are some schools of thought, and I won't get into that tonight because it will distract us from our primary study, but you should be aware of the fact that many contemporary scholars believe that the entire New Testament was in Hebrew originally. Not a big issue right now for our purposes, but just be aware of the fact that much of what you read about the textual background of the New Testament is uh, getting uh, um, reviewed in some very interesting and constructive ways. That, um, but uh, we'll move on. Grace be unto you in peace from, in effect, three people. From him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and so forth. Very frequently in the New Testament we have the evidence of the Trinity. That's very obvious. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Or Father, the Holy Ghost, you know, whichever. Here, it's not as obvious until you look at it very carefully. Now, the first collection here is from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Those three descriptors are the same person. Who is that? That's the Yahweh. That's the, the Jehovah, as some people prefer, by misunderstanding of the German pronunciation of the Hebrew. But the point is, the tetragrammaton, as you might say. When Moses was before the burning bush, who shall I say it sent me? The Ichyach Asher Ichyach, the I am that I am. He who uh, is and who was and who is to come. Now, it's interesting that this is not used elsewhere in the New Testament, but you find it that uh, is, has its equivalent phrase all through the Old Testament. It speaks of his eternity and his immutability, his unchangeableness as well as his from eternity past to eternity future, if you want to use those um, oxymorons, if I may. The third one, and from Jesus Christ, I think we can follow that, and we will in a minute, but there's one in between here that may strike you strange. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne... Now, if you're looking at the structure, you can sort of figure out who that is. You've got the Father, you've got the Son, and between them there's this spirit guy. But the phrase that's used may seem strange to our ears, the seven spirits before his throne. If I say the sevenfold spirit, it might not sound so strange to you. But let's just track this one down. We won't do this to everyone, but let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11 to get a glimpse of why we have trouble with the book of Revelation. The reason you and I have trouble with the book of Revelation is because we have not done our homework in the Old Testament. If you knew your Old Testament as well as you should know your new, the book of Revelation would read much more comfortably. You know, one of the great tragedies of the church in the early centuries, especially as you get, uh, well, in the early centuries on, the Christian church became very anti-Semitic. 
through some tragic misconceptions. And that was, of course, very tragic for the Jew, because through 1,900 years of abuse, much of the persecution of the Jews has come under the banner of Jesus Christ. The Crusaders used to have contests of how many Jewish babies they could put on the end of the sword and all this. It's just When you read the history of the Christian church in terms of its relationship with Jewry, it's tragic. There's a flip side of that, too. It's also, it was also very tragic for the church, because the church lost its understanding over the years of its essential Jewishness. We serve a Jewish king with a Jewish Bible that was uh, promulgated by Jewish apostles, etc. And much of the idioms and understanding of the Bible are deeply rooted in the Old Testament and in, in the background of Judaism. And uh, it's tragic that we're just beginning, as we begin to look at it more clearly, it's amazing how much, we, how much insight we get by, its basic, by understanding its basic Jewish. But anyway, in Isaiah chapter 11, the first two verses are worth, well, verse 2 is where I'm headed, but let's read verse 1. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. And of course, the root of David is one of the titles of Jesus Christ in Revelation 5 and so on. But verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and and of the fear of the Lord. Now, if you don't overlook the Spirit of the Lord as one of them, you realize there's seven listed there. The seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit. It's an Old Testament way of alluding to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to do a study of the Holy Spirit, you don't start in Acts 2. You start in Genesis chapter 1. Darkness is on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God brooded on the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit starts in Genesis chapter 1. All the great acts of God throughout the Testament, whether you talk about the creation, or whether you're talking about the uh, resurrection, all of them can be attributed to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in different verses. And that's an interesting study. But the point is, you study the Holy Spirit, you start early. This is one of the titles, and this is a phrase that is used here in um, Revelation chapter uh, 1, verse 4. So, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. (laughs) And now we have seven titles, or seven aspects, of Jesus Christ enumerated in the next couple of verses. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Was Jesus Christ the faithful witness? Surely. Remember he told uh, John 14:9, he, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And you could concatenate many verses that would substantiate that idea. The first begotten of the dead. Now this is a word that's often misunderstood. Also in the book of Colossians and also Laodicea, both of them deal with this strange title of Jesus Christ, the first begotten of the dead. We think of that the first begotten as begotten. It's a, it's, it's a title of position of honor, of authority. It means firstborn in its primitive sense. It also means the, the uh, uh, priority or sovereignty or leader. It's a title of honor, Romans 8.29, Colossians 1.15, elsewhere. First begotten of the dead. And certainly he was the first fruits of them that slept. We'll be coming to that again too. And the prince of the kings of the earth. The word prince is misleading to you and I. The word really means ruler. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, this is a millennial title. He certainly isn't a ruler now in, in, a, in a direct sense. Who is the god of this age? Satan. He's a usurper. And he's one of the things that's out of place. There's several things out of place in the book of Revelation. Israel is supposed to be in the land. Church is supposed to be in heaven. Jesus is supposed to be on his throne, not his father's throne. And so forth. 
And uh, uh, Satan has got another destiny that the book of Revelation will deal with. But his millennial title would be the uh, ruler of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Unto him that loved us. And the, uh, this is in the present tense, by the way. It emphasizes his constant attitude toward us, toward his own. Now, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, the book of Revelation should not frighten us. It frightens many people. It shouldn't. Because it's all about him. And the him that it's about is one that loves us. And one that's in control. One who has the destiny in his hands. And that's emphasized thousands of ways as we will quickly become sensitive. And him that loved us and washed us from, his, uh, from our sins in his own blood. This is not just a symbol. It's embedded in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11, that without the shedding of blood there is no remission. And 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20 um, emphasizes this. He purchased us not with silver and gold, but with his precious blood. And hath made us a kingdom of priests unto God and his Father. It's interesting. The fatherhood is Jesus' father. He's our father in the sense that we are in him. He's not our father directly. We're offsprings of Adam. Adam was a son of God, but we're sons of Adam. Some subtleties there that you can spend time digging into if you're inclined to, but uh, we'll keep moving here. Now, we are seated on his throne, according to the book of Ephesians, but that's a concept that uh, is, may elude us right now because it sure doesn't feel like it. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, first 10 verses deals with the fact that you and I, if we're in Christ, are seated in the heavenlies by being in him. To him, anyway, finishing verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, this glory and dominion, you don't sense it here, but if you study the book of Revelation, you'll discover this phrase is picked up right on through and expanded. Um, in chapter 4, uh, verse 11, it'll be glory, honor, and power. In chapter 5, verse 13, it'll be blessing, honor, glory, and power. Chapter 7, verse 12, it becomes blessing, glory, honor, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. How many are there? Make a guess. Seven. You bet. And so it's, it builds up. You begin to recognize the book of Revelation is almost like a symphony. It's very, very tightly orchestra orchestrated in its structure. And then verse 7 we have, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Very personal, very physical reality, his second coming. This is not the rapture. Every eye shall see him. See, if, he, if, if he's coming to earth, there's no need to stop in the air. Something else is going to happen before this happens. We'll get to that. But in any case, every eye shall see him. Also they had pierced him. Remember Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. In the book of Zechariah. In fact, let's pause and take a look at that because there's another point I'd like to make there. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah is one of the passages in the Old Testament that describes the second coming. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Interesting phrase, the piercing of Jesus Christ, described in Psalm 22 in such graphic detail that the psalm reads as if it was written while you hung on the cross. His first and last sayings are in Psalm 22, and the fact that his hands and feet were pierced, etc. Here again, we have this allusion to the fact that he's, he's pierced. But it's kind of interesting. He says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. 
If you have a Hebrew interlinear Bible, that's a word that has the Hebrew, and then under each Hebrew word it has the English translation, and of course the word order in the English is often mixed up because the word order in the Hebrew is different. But if you look at this page in the Hebrew Bible with the English, you discover that under every Hebrew word there's an English, it's an English equivalent, except one place. You'll discover that between the me and the whom, there are two letters that are not translated. And modern linguists will have an elaborate double talk to explain why they're not translated. They're prepositions, except they're not used as prepositions. They're not linked to the other words. I won't get into all that here. The point is there's two letters there. An aleph and a tau, which happen to be the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, what this actually says is, and they shall look upon me, the aleph and the tau, whom they pierced. That was in Greek. It would say the alpha and the omega. Now, in the book of Revelation, we're going to encounter this alpha and omega frequently. But it's interesting that in the Old Testament, here and in the creation, Barashit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God, the Aleph and the Tau, created the heaven and the earth. Kind of interesting. Anyway, back to Revelation, verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega is probably familiar to our ears as one of the titles or attributes of Jesus Christ. Most of you know, if you've been in any of my studies, you know that I'm kind of a, a nut, kind of an extremist. And you don't have to inherit my peculiar viewpoint, but I share it with you just to put you on your guard, if nothing else. But the more I study the Scripture, the more I'm startled with its precision. If you look at the original Greek here, the Alpha and the Omega, the word Alpha is spelled out. The Omega is just the letter Omega. And it seems that the Alpha is spelled out because the beginning has been completed. The Omega hasn't been yet. I'm beginning to have more and more respect for, the, for the, the, this rabbinical view I run into in Israel. The rabbis say that we really won't understand the scriptures until the Messiah comes. But when the Messiah comes, he will not only interpret the passages, he'll interpret the words, even the very letters. In fact, he'll even interpret the spaces between the letters. When I first heard that many years ago, I smiled. I thought it was just a colorful exaggeration. Until I read again Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, where Jesus himself says, Think not that I come to destroy the Torah and the prophets. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, not one yacht or one tittle shall pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Now, a yacht or a tittle in the, in the uh, Hebrew is almost the same thing as, in our language, crossing a T or dotting an I. They're parts of a letter. I suddenly realize these rabbis are probably not as extreme as I first thought. Then as I get it, I start chasing some of these other things. I'm fascinated by that. Now, to somebody that's not a believer or not into this thing, they just check your nuts. You know, why, why couldn't Omega have been spelled? Well, it isn't. Anyway, we'll move on. Now, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Now, by the way, I think I can make it to the end. I want to throw a few other things in here with you. There's something that we should talk about. <laughs> if you have these bicycle riders ring the doorbell, I want to share some scriptures with you, you know. And I'm really talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses right now. You say, sure. I really screwed up the other day, by the way. I'm really upset about it. I had someone call on the phone. We have an electric gate and a phone and said, I want to share some scriptures. I was too busy. I said, no. And I thought, I, I regretted it. So they went, I could have let them in and closed the gate. <laughs> anyway, 
First thing you do, if you come across people like that, you take them to Isaiah 41.4. Take them to Isaiah chapter 4. You may want to write these down. Isaiah 41.4. Or write in your own little chain link here if you want. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. You read this and have them tell you who this is. He said, Who hath wrought and done it, calling generations from beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am He. You say, Who is that? And they'll say, Well, that's Jehovah God. Really? Okay, let's go to 44, 6. So you go over to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is none other. None other God. You say, Who's that? And they'll say, Well, that's Jehovah God. Good. What about, let's go to Isaiah 48.12. Get to Isaiah 48.12. By now they're getting a little annoyed. It says, Hearken to me, O Jacob, Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, and I also am the last. Who is that? And I'll say, well, that's of course Jehovah God. By now they get annoyed. They say, okay, we'll go to the book of Revelation. They love to go to the book of Revelation. So you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, where we just left. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. Who's that? Well, that's Jehovah God. Okay. Let's go to Revelation 21.6. Okay, we'll go to 21.6. He said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. You say, Great. Who is that? That's Jehovah God. Now you're ready. Then you go to chapter 2, verse 8. And unto the angel of the church is murder write, These things saith the first and the last, who was dead and is alive. Ooh, wait a minute. Who's that? Interesting, isn't it? Yes, none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But let's move on. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, occurs three times in this book, but anyway, who also am your brother and a companion in tribulation, not the great tribulation, he's just under persecution, because Domitian has uh, started the, his big purge. So he's, uh, in fact, in exile, as we'll find out here shortly. Uh, companion in tribulation and in, in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos is an island roughly about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide, about 50 miles from Ephesus, just off the coast of what you and I would call Turkey. After the 4th century, that area was called Asia Minor. It's interesting, I, I remember I was in a, in a financial meeting with a major New York investment house. And I met the head of this group, came in the thing, and walked up to me, and I, it was a business meeting. He says, Chuck, I understand you're an expert in Revelation. I, what? You know, how did that get in this meeting? You know? Well, it turns out that uh, he has a home on the Isle of Patmos. He says, you got to come visit my wife and I. And I thought he was just being pleasant. Fine, we went for their meeting. About a week later, he called me. He says, when are you coming? It turned out, I had, Nan and I had to go to Europe for some other reasons about the time it was convenient for him anyway. So we ended up visiting him on the Isle of Patmos. That was as he married a Greek wife and they lived there six months out of the year. So we took a boat out of Athens and went to the island and spent a few days there. It was a delightful time. It's a small island protecting a little bay that's uh, downwind from a prevailing wind that goes uh, north to south in that region. I used to always be amused at the windsurfers there because they're so energetic. They, the game is to windsurf out from the lee of the island and try to make it back. And if you don't make it, you're carried all the way to Libya. So it's a real incentive program. <laughs> it's an interesting place to visit. And, of course, it's, uh, it's, uh, there's a monastery there and all that. Anyway, Patmos is a literate place. This is where John was exiled for, from 86 to about 96 those years, and he was about 90 years old when the Lord gave him this incredible revelation. 
So he was in exile because uh, of the persecutions. Verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. He says, I was in the Spirit. Every Christian lives in two locations. Every Christian lives in two locations. And imbalance in either one can lead to either mysticism on the one side or materialism on the other. And one of the things that you and I work hard to try to do spiritually is to maintain that balance. But we have, obviously, two locations. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, here's where a lot of people have different views. Many commentators say that it simply was a Sunday morning. And I won't quarrel with that, but I don't believe that uh, for a couple of reasons. I'll just express this as a personal belief. I personally don't believe that Sunday is the Lord's Day. I think that's a church tradition, and it's time-honored, and I'm not disparaging it, but I believe Jesus Christ was resurrected Saturday night before sundown, which is just an incidental thing that I could spend a lot of time boring you with why I believe that. doesn't mean I'm right. There are very good scholars that disagree. There's very good scholars that hold that view. So you, you, there are good guys on both sides of that argument. I believe he was crucified on Wednesday. I think he was... I won't get, get it all out here. The point is, though, the concept of the day of the Lord is what is here, I believe, in view. The Lord's day, not in the sense of Sunday, the, what's in view here is the day of the Lord. And I believe that John is transported in the Spirit, say, some 2,000 years in the future, where he sees all this happening. So that's what I believe the phrase means. Just personal view. Day of the Lord. As opposed to the day of man. I think this is closing the day of mercy. And it's beginning the day of God's wrath. But he says, I heard, I turned, and I saw. And then I fell at his feet. That's what will end up coming out of this. That's what we need to do. We need to hear. We need to turn. We need to see. And we need to fall at his feet. He turns in verse 10. He sees in verse 12. And he falls at his feet in verse 17. And that's the challenge you and I share tonight. I was a spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10, and heard behind me a great, a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Now, the first question that should hit us as we're trying to study this with some seriousness is why these seven? This is taking place about 63 years after Pentecost. There's a lot of times gone by. There are a lot of churches around. Some estimate like a hundred of them. And as you ponder this a little bit, you wonder, why these seven? They're certainly not the most prominent ones from a New Testament perspective. Where's the church at Rome? You'd think that'd be important. They may be here in a little different trappings. Where's Jerusalem? The headquarters for Paul's ministry was Antioch. Where is it? Or Colossae, or Philippi, Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Miletus, Troas. In other words, these seven here, you probably would, except for Ephesus probably, you wouldn't have heard any of them except for the book of Revelation. Why did God pick these seven? And there's going to be a series of reasons for that we'll come to, but I want to recognize that for some reason... These seven were picked, and not only picked, but put in a particular order. Verse 12, John returning says, And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, it's a, the, the term is lakina in the Greek, 
it's not the candlesticks. That's an unfortunate translation. It's a light bearer is what the word really means. But if you understand it better, it should really say a lampstand rather than candlestick. Candlestick's a classic phrase. Now, the I am, the Alpha, and the Omega, the I am statements, uh, we could talk a lot about that. But when we see these lampstands, remember that I am the light of the world. You think of John 8. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then later he says, ye are the light, didn't he? See, one of the things that we really should take the time to do, and we really don't here, but I want to encourage you as part of your studies, and if you've done these studies, I encourage you to review them in the near term, is to study the tabernacle. Study the tabernacle. You'll find it uh, in uh, Exodus 25 and elsewhere. I want you to study the tabernacle to understand its arrangement, and I want you to understand that every detail in that tabernacle, the sizes, the materials, the instructions, speak of Jesus Christ. Speak of Jesus Christ. And it's an interesting study. We have a briefing package called The Mystery of the Lost Ark that happens to also to get that whole thing across as a, a full study of the symbolism of the tabernacle. Very important study to understand the Bible in general and the book of Revelation in particular. But at this point right now, let's just focus a moment. As you go to the tabernacle, the building part, inside the fence you've got the, the uh, brazen altar and you've got the laver and all that. You get into the holy places. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. When you walk in there, on the left, there is this menorah, a seven-branched lampstand. The one that they're building in Israel is, you know, like six feet high. It's a substantial device, oil-fed. Each of the seven elements of the tabernacle, Jesus makes a claim to. I am, you have only one gate to get into the tabernacle, one gate. I'm the door. Anyone that comes in but by me is a thief and a robber, he says. The brazen altar, of course, speaks of the cross. The laver... I am the living water, and so forth. As you go in, in the tabernacle, on the left is the only source of light in the tabernacle, which, of course, Jesus lays claim to. It's interesting that it was expressly commanded to be beaten out of a single piece of gold. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one plus the six, making the seven. I am the vine, you are the branches. To do what? To bear light. It's interesting, and not accidental, that here in the book of Revelation, we're going to see the seven in this case, individual lampstands representing the collective church. This is going to all unfold before us. But again, to have that tabernacle model is helpful. I won't go to the rest of it. It doesn't serve our purpose right here. I saw the seven golden lampstands, verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girded about the breasts with a golden girdle. Now, in the tabernacle, the one that was responsible to pour the oil, trim the wicks, take care of the lampstand was the high priest himself. It was his sole responsibility. If anything was unsatisfactory, he would replace it. That's exactly what Jesus' job is right now. And he mentions this in terms of John 15, I am the vine, in terms of the husbandman and what he does with the branches that don't bear fruit and so forth. You and I can be set aside. I'm not saying we can lose our salvation, but we can't be set aside. Even the prodigal son never lost his sonship. So I won't get into that whole thing here, but put you at ease on, on that part of it. Now, where is Jesus? He says he's right in the midst of these candlesticks. Where is Jesus Christ right now? In the midst of the church, watching and inspecting, and we'll talk a little bit more about what he's going to do here. The Son of Man phrase, by the way, occurs 85 times in the Gospel, 83 by Christ himself. Now, Josephus tells us that the priests were girded around the breasts, not around the loins. And that seems to suggest right here that what we're seeing is Jesus Christ in his role as high priest, tending the lampstands. That's his role right now. Indeed, we know from Hebrews uh, 
725, that he ever liveth to make intercession for us now. His primary role right now is to intercede for you and I. The other thing he's doing is cleansing us. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's, he is faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. He's also our advocate. 1 John 2, 1. But he also, there's another role he has that's not emphasized by the church very much. And that's that he's our inspector. He's writing report cards. And chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation that we'll get to after this one are probably the two most important chapters of the entire book as far as you and I are concerned. Much of the rest of the book will be very interesting. We'll learn a lot from it. But the one that's most applicable to you and I is chapters 2 and 3 because he writes inspection reports. And we'll learn an enormous amount about those when we get there. It speaks of garments here. We'll see garments a lot in the book of Revelation. You know, he's always clothed with light. Psalm 104 deals with that. He has a girdle of righteousness from Isaiah 11, verse, uh, verse 5. In Revelation chapter 19, we'll see his vesture dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies, before it's all over. And Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19 go closely together. We'll deal with that when we get there. When we speak of our garments, our garments are mentioned in Isaiah 64, 6. Most of us have it in our, in, our, in our Bibles. Our garments are like filthy rags, right? Or if you're really going to be precise, the Hebrew actually says our garments are like used menstrual cloths. Graphic, isn't it? Fortunately, if we're in Christ, imputed to us is His righteousness. From here on, we're going to have a description of Him standing there. It's the only physical description composite that's in the New Testament. It would be very analogous to the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And also the image we have of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. Let's just go through it. Verse 4. His head and his hair were white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. Now the hair, his hair and his head and so forth is very similar to Daniel chapter 7. You can read chapters, uh, chapter 7, 9, 13, 22. It's a very similar description. By the way, how many attributes are going to be listed here? Make a guess. Seven. Good guess. His eyes like a flame of fire. Hebrews 1.13 says they're too pure to behold evil. Hebrews 4.13 says before those eyes all things are naked. 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of our works being tried by fire. And Malachi 3, of course, speaks of a refiner's fire. These idioms are probably pretty comfortable to most of us if we read the Bible a lot, both in terms of the eyes like a flame of fire. But the fire speaks of judgment, as does verse 15. And his feet were like fine bronze, as if they burned in a furnace. Now, the feet are typically symbols of the walk, obviously. The purified bronze, or brass as it's sometimes translated, speaks of judgment. Brass was the material in ancient Israel that could sustain fire, and so brass was Levitically a symbol of fire or judgment. And that's what's so strange about the brazen serpent. Remember when they had that plague of vipers in, in uh, Numbers? that God sent as a judgment. And Moses prayed. He says, okay, Moses then, uh, prayed for them to be healed. He says, okay, Moses, put a brass serpent on a pole and put it up on top of the hill, and everyone that looks to it will be cured. Now you look at that and say, that's kind of a weird way to go. I mean, God's going to heal them. Lots of ways to do that. What a strange way to do that. And of course, uh, Romans 15.4 tells us, all things are written in the foretime were written for our learning. And that's explained for us by Jesus himself when he meets Nicodemus at night, chapter 3 of John. Because as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up, literally, on a cross. 
the concept of a serpent, a brass serpent, as a symbol of Jesus Christ. It's prophetic of Jesus Christ in Numbers 24. What a strange symbol. A serpent signifying sin, brass, sin judged. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He was made sin for us. Boy, it's a, you and I have no capacity to understand what it meant to have a holy, perfect, sinless God be made sin for us. But that's what was going on on the cross. Anticipated in, in an idiom in Numbers 24. You think Revelation's full of symbols, so is the Old Testament. Some before the fact, some after the fact. Anyway, brass is a symbol of judgment. And his voice like the sound of many waters. Every time I read this, I think, can you imagine arguing with Niagara Falls? And, of course, his voice, you can go through the scripture. You get a concord. That's why concordance is so valuable. If you can get into this book, you can take this and take both waters or his voice and follow. See all the places those words are used throughout the scripture, how the whole universe was called into being in Psalm 33, verse 6, and so by the breath of his mouth. And you can work with that. We'll keep moving on here. Verse 16, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. He had his right hand seven stars. Now these are going to be explained to us in verse 20. In fact, we might just peek ahead. Your best commentary on the book of Revelation is first of all the book of Revelation, secondly the Bible itself. Now, if you wonder what these stars were and all that, verse 20, at the end of this chapter, says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the, or messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. So the lampstands, we don't guess at them. They're told. What are they? They represent these seven churches. These seven churches will turn out to represent all churches. We'll show you how when we get to chapter 2 and 3. The stars are the angels or messengers of these churches. I tend to view them as supernatural angels. Some people just say, well, they're the pastors. I won't quarrel either way. All the other implications will still fit. So, whatever it is. It's interesting, he's in the midst of us, and yet where are we? In his hand. He's in the midst of us, he's watching. His eyes are searching. The little boy asks his dad, nervously, can God see me all the time? Most of us act like there's certain times we don't think he can, I understand that. So the little boys, I guess. Father says, son, he loves you so much, he can't take his eyes off you. Isn't that beautiful? His right hand has seven stars, verse 16, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. You know, it's tragic. You can see some of the ancient artists, uh, Renaissance artists, paint, try to paint the book of Revelation. And they have him standing there with a sword coming out. It's grotesque, actually. It misses the whole point. What is the sword, coming? a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth? The Word of God, sure. Uh, uh, Hebrews 4.12 mentions that. Ephesians 6.17. Isaiah 49.2. Uh, that's a frequent idiom in the scripture. The two-edged sword is none other than the word of God. The sword is used in Ephesians 6. It's kind of interesting there. It's the, there the, what probably was in view, in Paul's view as he was penning that, was the 24-inch Machaira, the short sword of the Romans. That sword had two interesting aspects to it. It wasn't very useful unless you had a lot of training with it. It was powerful if you were well-trained with it. And secondly, it was primarily designed for close quarters. Think about it. I wonder if our sword suffers for our lack of training. And I wonder if it suffers because we don't move in close, huh? And his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. 
This phrase, the more you know about the old, the more you know about the Bible, the more puzzling it is because the son is an Old Testament idiom. The son of righteousness, something Malachi says, you find in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you always find the bright and morning star. It's a very interesting consistency, and yet here's one of the exceptions. And I'm going to suggest to you one of the first clues you get to understand the book of Revelation is to begin to see it in Old Testament terms. You need to understand the book of Revelation in its intrinsic Jewishness. That will become very obvious after chapter 4. Between now and chapter 4, it won't be too evident. Just hint it here and there. But you'll see it as yourself as we go. Verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Interesting, interesting sequence. I heard, I turned, I saw, and I fell. That's what you and I need to do. We need to hear him. We need to turn. What's the synonym for turn? Repent. And we see him, and then we fall. Fall at his feet. I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying on him, Fear not. And that's what he's saying to you tonight. Fear not. For four reasons you don't fear. Fear not. I am the first and the last. He's announcing his deity and his eternity. He's in charge. Secondly, I am he that liveth and was dead. Our confidence comes from an empty tomb that you can go visit if you want. His resurrection. He's alive forevermore. I am alive forevermore. He's right now alive and he's alive forever. And finally, and have the keys of Hades and of death. Not of he- the, hell- the term hell is unfortunate, often in your translation. The word hell is broadly used. In the Old Testament, the word is Sheol. It was the abode of the dead. The grave might be a better term. In the New Testament, we find the word Hades. It's a temporary facility. It's generally described in the scriptures geocentric. You hear the bottomless pit. We'll talk about the bottomless pit later on in the book and explain where it is. The eternal place is Gehenna. It's in the outer darkness. It's described in terms that are opposite of Hades. Hades is temporary. Gehenna is permanent. In fact, the climax book of Revelation has Hades thrown into Gehenna. So we won't use the term hell because it's ambiguous and misunderstood. In fact, when we, use, we hear that term, most of us are victims of English literature. Dante and others have done some very, made some very colorful myths by some misunderstandings. And Satan is not in red flannel pajamas with a pitchfork. It's uh, not, not biblical. Now, what may be the most important verse of this chapter, in some respects, is verse 19. I want you to really understand verse 19. This is the only book in the Bible, I believe, that has a divinely inspired outline. I'm amazed how many people write books about the book of Revelation and ignore Revelation's express outline. Jesus Christ is instructing John here in chapter 1 what to do. So I want you to write this book and I want you to send it to seven churches. He's giving him instructions. And his marching orders are in verse 19 in great detail. Jesus is speaking to John and saying, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. That is pretty straightforward. Write the things which thou hast seen. What has John seen? Chapter 1. He was there in the Spirit of the Lord's day. He heard a voice, turned and saw Jesus Christ. He describes what he saw, what he heard. This isn't a dream, it's he saw, he heard, he fell at his feet. And Jesus says, write the things which thou hast seen. Okay, that's up till now, isn't it? 
Then he says, write the things which are, that are existing. That'll turn out to be chapters 2 and 3. The seven churches were existing there. They are literally seven churches. There was a church at Ephesus, at Smyrna, at Pergamos, at Thyatira, at Sardis, at Philadelphia, at Laodicea. They were there. They were churches. Many people thought they were symbolic. Uh, Sir William Ramsey excavated them. We learned a lot about them from archaeology. And what we learn about archaeology fits the situation in the letter. In the letters, they have some problems, and it fits what we know about them archaeologically. They're literal churches. Don't stop there. There's far more there. But the point is, what are the things that the things that have seen is the vision that just happened, the things which are chapters 2 and 3. Then what it says, then write the things which are in the, he, in the Greek, it says metatauta. Metatauta. After these things. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it starts with metatauta. It's a signpost. It's a trigger. It's a, it's a uh, marker, if you will. Bookmark. So we'll, we'll hit that, of course, when we get to chapter 4, verse 1. So here's the outline of the book. It's in three parts. They're not of equal size. Chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, and from chapter 4 on. Okay? The mystery of the seven church stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, seven stars of the angels, seven churches, and the seven lampstands which thou sawest are the seven churches. It's amazing how many of the idioms we're going to encounter in the book of Revelation are explained just that directly. And as you understand those, you can start hanging the other ones on it. And as you start, you take each one and just follow it with a concordance. And it's an exciting, exciting thing. Now, what I want you to do for next time, next time we get together, we're going to talk about chapter 2 and 3. We're not going to go at it that quickly, because those chapters 2 and 3 include seven letters written by Jesus Christ to seven churches. And one of the things that your assignment, in a sense, will be to try to understand why those seven churches, and you're going to discover that those seven letters have, first of all, seven specific parts to the letter. It's designed so that each letter has seven elements. Seven elements. Once you understand that, you'll discover there's a couple of places where the elements are missing and they're very significant. And we will have handouts for you that will help you take notes on that. The seven letters of seven churches. But what you're going to discover is, first of all, that I'm going to suggest to you that those letters have at least four levels of meaning. Four levels of meaning. The first one's a simple one. I'll call it the local level. There were local churches. They literally had problems. When this collection of documents arrived, it fit their situation, and they were edified, I'm sure. That's perhaps the most obvious one, but probably the one that will entice us the least. You'll discover when you study the seven letters to seven churches that each one has a phrase in it. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that little phrase is almost like a, a marker. It's in each letter, exactly like that. Now, the first thing you'll notice is that it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Which means that all seven letters apply to all seven churches. And I'm going to suggest to you that one, another level of meaning for these seven letters, seven churches, is admonitory. That is, the letters, all seven, apply to all of us. And once you understand the seven letters, you can talk about any church you've ever been in, in terms of how it maps with those seven. 
And I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news, we're not all attending the Church of Philadelphia, much as we'd like to feel we are. There's some of each church in every church you're in. And once you understand those seven, church, seven letters, you'll understand the, the dimensionality against which you can map the spiritual condition of any church. So it's an admonitory thing. A third level. The spirit, he that hath an ear. Now, how many of you have an earlobe? Can I see a show of hands? That letter is written to you. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in other words, there's a level of meaning in that letter that's personal. Call it homiletic. It applies to you and I, quite apart from what church we're going to. It's different, another dimension to these letters we'll uncover. And of course, there's a fourth level of meaning, and that is a very strange one. It turns out that these seven letters will lay out the history of the church from the apostolic period to our present day. Not everybody would agree with this, and everybody has slightly different views on some of it. You want to form your own view. But the, what's interesting is if the letters were in any other order, that wouldn't be true. But in the order they're in, they lay out in amazing clarity the history of the Christian church from the time of the book of Acts until Jesus says, enough's enough. The book of Acts covered about 30 years. The book of Revelation, in a sense, is the continuation of the book of Acts for another 2,000. Something else you're going to discover just very quickly is that the seven parables of Matthew 13 that Jesus gave his disciples and also the seven churches that Paul wrote letters to all map with the same kind of fingerprints. You're going to find the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit over all of these things. You're going to discover that each letter has a design. Each letter has a particular theme. And every detail in that letter points to that theme. The name of the church. The title that Jesus chooses to allude to himself. He gives them a report card. The good news, the bad news, what you need to do to straighten out. You'll discover something else that's kind of interesting. The he that hath an ear phrase. There's a promise to the overcomer that concludes the letter. And it comes after the he that hath an ear phrase in the first few letters. Then something very subtly changes. That that promise the overcomer is brought into the body of the letter. It's a postscript in the first three. It's, uh, it's in the body of the last four. I'm going to suggest to you the last four letters are the ones that speak of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The last four churches go into the tribulation, except for one. One is an express promise to be removed from before the tribulation starts. The other one has a promise that it will go into the tribulation. And you're going to find out some very shocking things. If you have some preconceived notions about the church, they may be shattered by the time you finish studying carefully the seven letters of seven churches. So it's a very, very expensive program I'm enticing you into. It's going to be very expensive because it may cost you your presuppositions. It may cost you your perspectives. You're going to see the roadmap as Jesus Christ himself lays it out in clear detail. I challenge you as we continue the study. I encourage you before our next meeting certainly read the letter to the book of the church of Ephesus in chapter 2. That's the first half a dozen verses. First uh, seven verses. If you possibly can, I encourage you to read as a minimum more than once chapters 2 and 3 as a package. As a package. And you'll get far more out of it. Now those of you that are really serious about this study, before the next time we meet, I'd like you to read Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. That's about the church of Ephesus in the book of Acts. And I'd like you to read the epistle to the Ephesians, especially chapters 3 and 5. 
We're going to attack the letter to the church at Ephesus. And so you might read Acts 18 through 20, which deals with Paul's dealing with the church of Ephesus, because it's all tied together, interestingly enough. And also read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Read the whole letter if you can. If not, at at least read chapters 3 and 5 to get a flavor of that issue. And you're going to be in in for some very, very pleasant, exciting surprises about the church of Ephesus next time we're together. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you that we can come before your throne without an appointment, that you have made it possible for for us to have just direct access to you. And we thank you, Father, for this revelation of Jesus Christ that you've given us. And Father, we petition you in his most holy name to send us your Holy Spirit to open this book to our hearts and lives. Help us, Father, to behold Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to accomplish your purposes in these things. Not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit. Father, we would just ask these things that we might indeed grow in grace, the knowledge of him that we might be more responsive to your will, that we might better understand that which you would have of us in return. For we commit ourselves, the study, and this coming week before you, indeed, in, in the name of the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Tau, Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.